Welcome, uh, everyone, to tonight's event. My name is Aminu Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And it is my great pleasure this evening to welcome John Stavinsky to the LSE today. As I'm sure you're all aware, John is the vice chairman of PIMCO and a managing director. And as vice chairman, he helps advance PIMCO's global strategy and serves as a strategic advisor to their clients around the world. He is one of the best networked people I have ever met. Uh, he has 30 years of experience in investment banking uh, and uh, has uh, an MBA from the University of Chicago and so on. But that's really only a very small part of the story. John is also a champion of human rights, a patron of the art, a supporter of the homeless, and much, much, much more. Uh, I won't go into all the, uh, all the various roles he's played, uh, but it is worth looking at. He will speak tonight on the next phase of the anti-slavery movement, setting out what must be done to keep the eyes of the world on this human rights crisis and how the front line and business, commun business communities can be become more unified in their abolitionist effort. Now, for those of you who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE anti-slavery, and I'd ask you to keep your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. We will record tonight's event so that it can be podcast afterwards. And uh, as usual, after John's talk, uh, there will be time for questions and answers. So would you please join me in welcoming John Stadinsky for his lecture entitled Supply Chain Economics and the Next Phase of the Anti-Modern Slavery Movement. Thank you very much for that. Uh... Actually, I like that introduction because there was nothing embarrassing. It was understated. Um, and, and given that I've lived here almost 40 years, I've come to appreciate understatement, since this is the sort of hub globally of understatement. But if all of you were running uh, a large corporation today, or a small corporation, or a mid-sized corporation, uh, and you looked at me straight in the face and said, you know, we're running this company, I'm running this company, but in fact, um, we don't have any slavery anywhere in our supply chain. We're quite confident of that. Um, I would probably smile. I would sort of embrace my Christian principles of patience and humility. And then I would step back and say, bullshit. I've met many chief executive officers from around the world in the last five years, many whom have probably been standing at this podium, many of whom have spoken about their uh, business acumen, their champion slave um, shareholders, and championing other aspects of their corporation. I would say, if you haven't found slavery in your supply chain, you haven't been looking hard enough and you need to take a new approach. Now, the approach has evolved, and this is the whole purpose of this talk, and to a certain extent, as I've said to Manoush, it's always good when God gives you a tangible case study. Because I know this is the London School of Economics, 
I know you all are immersed in rigorous econometric models and data, but having said that, um, we have a good case study right now because we've had so many exogenous factors uh, in the world in the last five years affecting the perception of supply chains. Uh, we've had Donald Trump's rattling the sword with respect to China trade, and people finally thinking, how is the Donald Trump trade negotiations with China going to affect uh, my business model? We've had Brexit, and the jury's out. No one quite knows what that means uh, in terms of uh, supply chains. But most recently, since Monday, January 20th, uh, in the Western world, and probably um, December 10th in China uh, last year, uh, the world has come to embrace the coronavirus, which has um, brought the stock market down in New York yesterday by 1,000 points and is now causing a lot of focus on what actually is a supply chain. And I'm sure everyone in this room has spent a lot of time studying supply chains. Having said that, I would say most of the world hasn't really come to grips with what a supply chain is and what's in their supply chain. And moreover, as it gets into labor, exploited labor, child labor, prison labor, North Korean labor, what is actually going on in the supply chain. And this is now, because of this virus starting in China, you've had the world all of a sudden having a bright light shown on supply chains. But let me just take a step back and put this in context since Manoush has been generous and has given me 20, 30, or possibly as many as 40 minutes. Modern slavery, just to put this in context, is the fastest growing international crime. There's no question about that. It's $150 billion, and I just want to say that again, it's a $150 billion business with respect to illegal business. So there's a lot of money to be made, and we all know when there's a lot of money to be made, there's a lot of clever people who want to retain their position in terms of making money. It is, there are more slaves today than at any other point in human history. And I think we have to take that on board because we have the history of, of England and we all know the great houses in this country have been built as a result of the slave trade and all the money that was made in the slave trade and that's true for a number of other places uh, in the United States and in Europe. Um, and today there are probably about 40 million victims a year 40 million victims a year. And that breaks down as follows. There are about 24, 25 million of people who are in the category of exploited labor. Uh, and I use the word exploited labor because there are variations of exploitation. And there are probably about 14 or 15 million of people who are in, mostly women, who are in forced marriage. At any given point in time, the majority of these people, I would say two-thirds of these people, are women, and these people are trafficked for a number of reasons. Um, they're trafficked for purposes of domestic work, agricultural work, textiles. 
Uh, men are trafficked as fishermen. And, of course, the, um, the one that gets the most attention is sexual exploitation uh, or sex workers. So that sets the scene. This is a big, it's a lot of money to be made. Um, 40 million people a year. Uh, it's a human rights issue, and it's a great tragedy. Um, and there's no question that we have to deal with this from the standpoint, we're here at the LSE, we have to deal with this from the standpoint of supply and demand of labor. And why does this take place? I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to pretend to be an economist. Um, but let's be clear, this is about supply and demand. Um, slave, slave labor is tangible, and it's quite interesting because when we look today at supply chains, there's been a lot of attention because of Greta and climate change and everything else on the climate elements of the supply chain. Certain aspects of that are tangible, carbon, the role of you know, carbon positive, carbon neutral, carbon negative in the supply chain, that's all very tangible. At the same time, um, other aspects of the supply chain um, are more tangible, like people. And you know, for the first time, and I would say this is really on the last five years, the world is focusing on the issue of people in the supply chain in terms of the role of capitalism and long-term wealth creation. And one of the principal tenets of capitalism that I've always embraced. And you know, I've been here now for almost 40 years in London, um, and I'm very much a staunch Christian, uh, and I'm very proud of my faith. Um, and I, and I, I go to Mass every day, uh, and I pray uh, probably almost an hour every day. And I get a lot of cynics who say, how can you justify God and mammon? What's going on here? Uh, and I say, well, wait a minute. What about the dignity of labor? Uh, you give someone a job. You've, you've empowered them to develop a sense of their purpose in life, the whole purpose of what I like to call human capital, which is a very powerful thing. Um, you know, I've, I've worked on Wall Street, as Manu says, for 40 years. Uh, I've worked at Morgan Stanley, Blackstone, and now PIMCO. So I've worked with a, a gamut of people, and I, I've seen this from the standpoint of the capital markets. Um, I've worked with a number of chief executives, um, and I've worked a lot on Human Rights Watch, bringing Human Rights Watch to Europe. And one of the things I learned early on in the human rights movement, of course, is the power of name and shame. Um, Companies, consumers, and you all are consumers in the power of social media today. The consumer is more powerful today through social media than ever before. A brand can be destroyed over one weekend if all of a sudden someone discovers that uh, a sporting apparel brand uh, potentially has slave labor in their supply chain. And more and more people want to buy slave-free T-shirts, or slave-free sports shoes, or and now can you prove that things are slave-free? And that's that gets into this whole question of how much scrutiny do you have over the supply chain? And to a certain extent, we've all relied on human resources historically. We've relied on the people in the corporation. We've relied on boards. We've relied on corporate social responsibility. 
And there are two things I would say. Uh, on a bad day, the Human Resources Department treats a lot of people in their supply chain like human remains. And on a good day, the human, um, the corporate social responsibility people are now finally evolving into people who are focusing on human accountability. Namely, they're taking responsibility for what's happening in their supply chain. The economics of modern slavery, there's no question, creates cost savings. Um, and, and you wonder, now how does this work? It works from some very simple factors. Um, people take, people employ, pick some tangible examples. If you go to a food retail store, you buy fish. You don't know um, the supplier of the fish. You pay a certain amount of money to that person. There might be two or three or four or five or six intermediaries. And in the last five years, companies have more and more been rigorous about auditing their supply chain. You've heard this expression a lot, auditing your supply chain. People say, well, we've audited our supply chain. In, in the UK, of course, modern slavery um, has been focused on since the Modern Slavery Act in 2015, which was introduced by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary, this was about auditing your supply chain and saying, we are absolutely sure that our supply chain is devoid of slaves. Well, to a certain extent, that is, um, it's relying perhaps too much on the credibility or the responsibility of the auditors. Um, and it's a bit like, and I've had many chief executives say to me, John, we can't take responsibility for our entire supply chain. And I said, well, wait a minute. If you walk into a hospital, you walk into the NHS, that's like someone saying at the NHS, we can't take responsibility for the millions of people who we have to care for every year. Um, so there has to be a sense, and, it, and, and we've seen it happen now, particularly with uh, what's happened in the last couple of weeks with supply chains, people saying, hmm, we have to look at our supply chains more rigorously and see what's there. And, uh, and I can tell you, having been auditing supply chains and been in platinum mines in South Africa, tea plantations in Assam, India, um, working with um, religious sisters who've rescued sex workers, from brothels in Nairobi, um, you can understand what's going on in supply chains, just that companies have got to develop a slightly different model. Let's pause now. And since we're here at the LSE, I've got to have, some, I've got to have a few serious uh, uh, economics uh, veterans to cite here. Um, many people have said to me in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and I spend a lot of time with pension funds, pension funds, of course, are very focused on uh, profit maximization, fiduciary responsibility, and everything else. And, of course, there's an ongoing debate between shareholder profit and stakeholder. And some of you are nodding, and you know the difference between shareholder is shareholder. Stakeholders embrace a broader constituency of employees, customers, community, and what have you. And the German model in the last 50 years since, or 50 or 60 years, has been what I'd characterize as a more rigorous stakeholder model. The Anglo-American model, for better or worse, 
has been very much a model based on shareholder profit, meaning the, profit, the purpose of the corporation was to make profit. And I've heard many people quote the person I'm going to quote right now and say, well, the, it's making profit at any expense. So 70 years ago, we just happened to be the 50th anniversary. It was published on September 13th, 1970. Uh, a gentleman called Milton Friedman, who some of you have heard of, some of you will not have heard of. Uh, most of the people in this room uh, were not born in 1970. Uh, I was. I don't think Manoush was, but I was, uh, I was definitely. <laughs> I was definitely uh, born. <laughs> one of his famous quotes, um, of course, he's written a lot, but of course the thing that was, has been repeated over and over again, but I want to focus on an important part of this because it's a tenant for this whole talk, which is there is one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits, so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say, which is to say, engages in open and free competition. We all understand that. This part seems to have been left off, which he actually said, without deception or fraud. Now, I think the without deception or fraud in the context of profit starts to build an argument not only for stakeholder capitalism, but it also builds an argument with what I like to talk about constantly. And many young people of your generation have been positively inclined to applaud this. And I like to talk about ethical profit. I don't like to talk about maximizing profit at any expense. I like to talk about ethical profit. And I think in some respects, if you read Phil Milton Friedman in a much bigger, broader context in terms of profit, without deception or fraud, he's talking about ethical profit. And this also relates to the movement that a number of people, um, like Mark Carney and Lynn Rothschild, a number of people have embraced in the last five to ten years, uh, including Ray Dalio and Larry Fink, on the whole question of inclusive capitalism, a capitalism that embraces a broader set of constituents in society. So what's interesting right now, though, is the whole question of capitalism and trust. I just want to give you a few statistics here, because I know you guys love data. Um, at Davos this year, um, I spent a lot of time with, um, I like to go to Davos. I've gone for the last 25, 30 years. And every year, there's a, there's a lot of research done by the Edelman people on trust. And this year, they, they published this year's report. It's quite interesting. This year, 56% of more than 34,000 respondents in 28 countries found that capitalism as, as it exists today does more harm than good in the world. 87% believe that stakeholders, not shareholders, are the most important long-term long to company success. 73% believe a company can take actions that both increase profits and improve conditions in the communities in which they operate. Meanwhile, the Institute of Business Ethics found that exploitative labor is one of the top three business ethics concerns of the British public. 
And lastly, the customer, the consumer, is more informed than ever about their choices as customers and consumers. And, you know, I cite all this because it was very interesting. Tom Friedman at Davos had produced the titles of more than 100 books that had been written in the last 18 months in a variation of languages, all talking about the new, looking at what is the definition of capitalism and what, how should you look at capitalism in a contemporary society. So it's interesting. Here we are today publishing a, a lot of books. Now, the other thing that was published at the same time is that a lot of books that have been published on democracy uh, and the relationship between capitalism and democracy and how they all relate to the community. So punchline here, the focus is really, I'm trying to get people to focus on ethical capitalism has now come up the agenda. And while many people uh, have challenged Milton Friedman, um, I think, to be fair, just to reiterate my point, the direction of travel is really very much from corporate responsibility, where people have treated these issues as a nice thing in the philanthropy bucket, or in the do-good bucket, or in the board shareholder letter bucket. Now this is being migrated to the corporate accountability bucket, where there has to be an element of what I call mandatory human rights due diligence. And I want to say that again, mandatory human rights due diligence in the supply chain. And I really call for this because when you look at people's supply chains, and I'm not going to name names because Manoush has been a good friend and warned me that this, is, this will be heard by a number of people around the world, but there are a number of corporate CEOs that I know enough about their supply chains in Asia to know that they've been shocked when they've looked at their supply chains and they've discovered prison labor, child labor, um, and variations of exploited labor. Um, and in many cases, labor that has not necessarily been, and child labor that have not been um, paid properly. All right, pause. Supply chain. Exogenous shocks. We've had over the last several years, as I've said, Brexit. We've had China trade with Donald Trump. And most recently, we've had the pandemic coronavirus. And I've always said, until the world has a shock, and of course, we still haven't had a big cyber shock. We haven't had any other major shocks. And I think we're now in a very volatile period. The planet seems to be very fragile at the moment. The world doesn't respond it responded really well in 2008, and those of us who worked in 2008, I did the AIG restructuring in 2008. We were given $182 billion as a bailout from the United States government, and we had to pay it back. But in the context of that, which we did in a very short time period, uh, we watched the world work in lockstep between the Fed, the PBOC, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan. The world was actually operating in unison. And what happens is when you do have a crisis, and the Great Recession of 2008 was a crisis, but what happened after that? What happened after that is um, people started looking at their supply chains because they were very focused on an economic expansion again. They were very focused on what was going to happen um, 
to enhance their profitability. Um, so I would say a decade ago, CEOs were very confident they were starting to outsource, will outsource. I mean, the most interesting thing is on Wall Street or here in the city, I would say to a CEO of a law firm, an accounting firm, or a bank, they say, well, we've outsourced cleaning. As so I'd say, who, so who are those people that clean your carpets at three in the morning? And they immediately look at you with a blank stare, and they have no idea if they have any type of audit protocol for knowing who those people are. Um, so there was a big focus on reducing cost, improving margins, improving profit in 2008. So that has all led to, if you will, a lot of people becoming overly um, focused on profit. And in doing that, they abdicated responsibility. They didn't necessarily have transparency of their supply chain, but they pushed as many of their costs out into places. And where did a lot of them go? A lot of them went to uh, the manufacturing hub of the world 10 years ago, China. And of course, that became, if you will, the great growth engine for how China, over the last 40 years, moved a billion people out of poverty into what, of course, has been one of the great economic miracles uh, you know, in, in the history of economics. Um, there still are another four or 500 million people who have to be moved, but it is one of the great um, moves. But right now, 10 years later, things have changed. Um, people, because of the coronavirus, people are now looking at their supply chains, and you're saying people are finding out, oh, why are we so dependent on these countries? Why are we so dependent on Asia? Why are we so dependent on this type of structure of our supply chain? So this has gotten people to pay a lot more attention. Now, simultaneously in the investing world, you've all heard of the sustainability goals that uh, the United Nations have come up with with the Global Compact. You've also heard about ESG. Uh, e is environment, S is social, and G is governance. Now at PIMCO, we can score bonds and stocks on the basis of ESG performance. So if a company and a business have good environmental practices in their supply chain and in the business model, they get high scores. If they have good social scores, if they employ low-income people in communities, if they have the right type of uh, structure of their uh, employment, um, they get high social scores. Um, but that will include the rubric or the umbrella of modern slavery, for example. And governance is also included in that. Um, and I just say that, you've, so you've got this simultaneously three things happening. You've got corporations who've now realized they've gone from being very focused on profit in 2008 to realizing, of course, they've had an 11-year economic expansion and their shareholders for the first time and the consumers for the first time are very focused on issues like climate change and increasingly on ESG. Now, in all of this, I will tell you, modern slavery has not gotten much attention. You, you've probably noticed there is not a Greta equivalent in the modern slavery movement. And I'm hoping, 
I'm hoping that maybe because the LSE is known for sort of profound activism <laughs> in its history, that somehow tonight in this group I will stimulate or nurture or encourage someone who will be willing to become a mentor for others or an activist themselves to move forward and shine an even brighter light on the modern slavery and human trafficking uh, issue, because it needs that type of lightning rod. Um, let's just spend a minute on the consumer. Um, consumers are spoiled. They want things here and now, that we have the Amazon effect, which has been very effective and successful. They want things inexpensive, but they also want things socially compliant. So we now have um, a situation where I would say the world's giant food multinationals are for the first time they're taking matters into their own hands. Um, many of them historically have bought palm oil from the outside, the, some of the big uh, consumer products companies that have skin care products. Um, many of them have bought fish from the outside. Many of them have bought um, tea from the outside. I've spent a lot of time working with um, companies in the, the tea industry. I've spent a lot of time in India, on, and I've spent a lot of time, and people are now taking more responsibility, and what they're doing is they're bringing these things back in-house, and they're taking, they, they feel as though, to a certain extent, um, they have to, because all of you in this room, for example, 49% of those people under 24, and I know that's probably too young for this group, have avoided a product or service in the last two years due to its negative environmental impact. They show a real appetite to address, uh, to understand the impact of all of their products. Unsurprisingly, this desire has translated into positive sales figures on this sort of area of ethical products. So there's a whole big movement, and it's really doubled in the last three years of ethical food products, products that are positive in terms of the environment, products that are positive in terms of being slave-free, to the extent that they can make that comment. Increasingly, the consumer has a big impact. So this gets to my broader point about um, uh, the consumer. Consumer has a lot of power because of social media. Um, Now, let's just spend a minute on the UK government, um, because I think we don't realize one of the great things Theresa May did when she was Home Secretary, and she was a very good Home Secretary, um, she actually was quite um, dogmatic, and she was a real leader, um, and she led, really, the developed world in 2015 with the Modern Slavery Act, which really was the lightning rod which required companies to disclose. If a company had more than 36 million pounds of sales, of turnover, they had to disclose what they were doing to avoid uh, slavery in their supply chain. Um, this type of disclosure uh, has evolved, and you know the, the legislation is being revised. The UK government is looking at ways of tightening up the legislation. Uh, we probably only have 50 or 60 percent of UK companies being fully compliant with this legislation right now, um, which is not good. 
But the UK has provided leadership globally on the modern slavery movement with, um, is probably the leader, uh, following, leading the Netherlands, the United States, Portugal, Sweden, Argentina, Canada, and Japan, uh, as well as Australia. These are all countries that have now, because of the UK, taken the issue of modern slavery very, very seriously. Um, these countries are all characterized, I think, by strong political will, uh, strong levels of resources, strong civil society, and I think where they've all been challenged, even in this country, is the whole area of prosecutions and enforcement. And when we talk about this whole area of supply chain, um, and that's why we get back to the supply, we have, why do we have a lot of people in track? You know, people forget. Um, people move. Biggest two sources of, of modern slaves come from Africa and Asia. But don't be fooled. There are many who are located in this country. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I've spent a lot of time doing is training chief executives to identify. For example, there's a large bank, one of the top three banks in the United States, where we've actually, through my work with religious sisters on the ground, we've trained their retail staff to identify people who are, who are slaves, who are being slaved and who have come and deposit money. And in doing that, for example, in the last 12 months, we've identified 600 cases in the United States of people who are being trafficked. Um, I can tell you there are nail salons in London and in New York City where we now figure out how to identify this. It's not about um, uh, American Express big data analysis at 3 in the morning where the customer happens to be a man, not a woman. Uh, we've done that as well. But the real way you identify it is when nail salons are out in the market purchasing a lot of clothes for women, they're purchasing them because those women are being used, are being trafficked in the evening as sex workers. Uh, so there are ways that you can train your staff in your own business models. Um, for example, in the tea plantations, one of the things we've discovered is, and this is quite interesting, 40% um, of the workers say that when there's um, only 40% of the workers told us, we, we surveyed 30,000 tea workers, tea plantation tea pickers, only 40% are given uh, protective guards to protect themselves from the environment. Um, and that happens uh, during audits. So the only way companies are now figuring this out is if they start randomly auditing. We have a lot of religious sisters on the ground who can go into businesses uh, as workers undercover. So they can go into mines in South Africa. They can go into tea plantations in Assam. They can go into other parts of uh, businesses, and they can get a better sense of what's going on in the world. So there's um, companies are trying to take this seriously, but at the same time, um, they're trying to, A, train their workers, B, keep their customers happy, and C, there's a shareholder mindset now that companies that are taking their supply chain seriously, and I, there are a couple of big consumer products companies in the tech space who will remain nameless, but they are really taking this seriously because they know that they have a strong brand 
and that their customers want to know that that brand is de facto slave-free. So they, they're training their workers, they're, they're training the supply chain, and they're also creating different ways of managing their supply chains so that, um, you know, because you're all wondering, okay, if I'm manufacturing components for a mobile phone, I'm paying you what the cost of those components are, but you may not be paying the worker anything. Or there may be three or four or five layers of workers, and there may be multiple supply chains. For example, there are, you know, in the cocoa industry, from when you actually pick the cocoa pod to all of a sudden to the, when the bar appears in the store, there are 17 different steps, 17 actually different supply chain purveyors that actually result. So different, so you, to actually understand that from the standpoint of cost, transparency, um, and impact is not very easy. So I, I know I'm, you're all staring at me like, my God, this is, so what are we going to do about this? Um, the reality of what we're going to do about this is some of the best-run companies are now seeing that they have to take responsibility for this as a Tier 1 issue. Um, and one of the things that we've discovered as shareholders, um, both on the equity side and on the fixed income side, is the better-run companies are not afraid to prioritize ESG, to prioritize the sustainability goals, because those people generally have stronger leadership. And there's a wonderful expression which you've all heard, which I use quite often, the fish rots from the head, <laughs> which is if the head of the organization is a strong leader, moral and ethical, and a role model, then that tends to translate into the culture of the corporation. So now, if you're an investor, you tend to have more confidence in that. And we're now we're seeing that these types of businesses tend to trade at a premium, or people are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt over a, of a longer time frame in terms of their strategy and the implementation of the strategy, particularly during this whole period where uh, STG and all of that is undergoing a lot of uh, scrutiny. Um, and to a certain extent, um, um, people are, you know, chief executives are spending time not only with their shareholders, not only with their bondholders, but their employees on the issue of the STGs and modern slavery, as well as their consumers. And they're getting a lot of feedback now on how the consumers want these issues dealt with. So the, the stakeholder mindset, and I just wanted to say that in terms of the shareholder mindset, has really taken over. Um, so what is the way forward? Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up and go, go into questions here because I know we're, we're just about at uh, 40 minutes. Um, there's no question that sustainable supply chains are good business. Um, and apart from relevant laws, um, people have got to look at sustainable supply chains um, around the world. And there's a growing evidence that companies can actually improve their financial performance by behaving responsible responsibly. Um, one of the things I've noticed is there's been a number of studies in the last year that have tracked the performance of companies over um, eight years, four years, and two years, and found that highly sustainable companies, those with strong environmental, social, and government systems and practices in place, outperformed 
low sustainability companies as measured by stock performance in real accounting terms. Um, and there's lots of examples. The other thing I would say is, and I like to use the word freedom dividend, um, the UK government um, has done its own analysis calculating the economic cost of modern slavery at between 3.3 and, and 4.3 billion pounds per year. And we argue, um, or a number of us in the Treasury argue, that by ending slavery would mean a better world for everyone. And we sort of call this, there's just an economic side, but we also call it a freedom dividend. So, you know, when I look at the, the, the landscape right now, and um, I really want to get people focusing on eradicating uh, slavery. Um, the real weakness is in prosecutions. Um, but to a certain extent, um, the supply chains of larger organizations are really complex. As a matter of fact, these big organizations that we've talked about have not just hundreds of supply chains, but in some cases, thousands of supply chains. So they've got to really change the way they're thinking. So what's happened is the supply chain procurement group, those resources are increasing. People managing supply chains actually much more status in the organization because the transparency of the supply chain is it's where the rubber hits the road now in terms of ethical profit. It's not just about productivity, technology, and artificial intelligence all meeting with the human factor of making sure people are actually being treated and managed in a fair and ethical way. And it also ensures, and we're seeing this now with coronavirus, that things are happening on schedule. Um, I think um, I'm going to close uh, by talking about a couple of things. Um, organizations, um, they can be implicated in modern slavery both directly and indirectly um, through supply chains and their involvement with business partners. Um, some people, for example, have temporarily developed um, supply chains jointly with, with people in the same industry in order to have sort of checks and balances on each other. And I think there's a lot of examples, increasingly, um, for people to try to develop this almost in a unionized way so there's greater, particularly in the garment industry, the textile industry, to, to develop greater uh, comfort that these are industry standards that people are complying with. Um, two things to close. Um, one, I want to go back to Milton Friedman. I want to go back to um, um, that wonderful quote 50 years ago. There is only one and one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase profits. So long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. And right now, when we look at the world, the majority of companies, almost all companies, have slaves in their supply chain. I would say there's now, for the first time, an attempt to pull apart, to pick apart the supply chain and really understand and create new protocols for auditing and understanding their supply chain. But it's early days. It's very early days. And I think it's important 
on the people in this room and incumbent on the people in this room as consumers, um, as shareholders, as bondholders, um, because, you know, the sustainability goals, there are 17 of them, and this is number eight um, in terms of labor exploitation. Um, and it's easy for this to get lost, but I go back to the fact that this is a tangible resource. Uh, it's an easier way to deal with the supply chain if you want to take it seriously, because it involves labor, it involves a human life, and it involves human dignity. And as I said, it's the freedom dividend. And lastly, um, please, there must be somebody in this room who is willing to take the Greta um, <laughs> charge on because she's made an incredible difference as an activist. She's annoyed a lot of chief executives. She's annoyed a lot of presidents, starting with Donald Trump. Um, but she's had an impact by shining a bright light on the issue of climate change. And what we lack, um, you know, when I was 17 years old, I, I worked for a year with Mother Teresa in um, the leper colony in Calcutta. Um, and it was a very good experience. But one of the things she always said every morning uh, is, you can only change the world one person at a time. And while you're going to do grand things in this world about running companies or running schools or running hospitals or running governments, remember, you only can change the world one person at a time. So that is now the mantra, I think, of the chief executive and the consumer. And all of you who are working for companies, when you get jobs coming out of here, you will you should think carefully and ask the question in the interview, what is the company's position on dealing with exploited labor, modern slavery, and how does it relate to how they manage, how they audit, how they oversee, and how they scrutinize their supply chains around the world. Thank you very much. start and then I'm going to come to the audience for uh, for questions. Don, you, um, you made a very compelling case for the urgency of this issue and you identified the, pr the, the, the pressure from citizens, from consumers, ESG, sustainability on firms to act. But that pressure tends to be on firms that we know that have brands. What about all of those anonymous firms in the supply chain? You know, factory number 42 in Shenzhen province, or you know, the, 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 the factories, the places that don't have brands. How does one have an impact on them? Um, well, let's separate, first of all, um, a, it's a good question, and B, you're right. If you're talking about um, a mainstream tier one consumer brand uh, in healthcare or toiletries or technology, that's one thing. Um, if we're talking about a mid-sized British company, um, a, br a mid-sized British company has to comply ultimately with the law. Um, and I... Um, you know, if we look at the top 10 companies who are embracing this globally, they're all strong civil society companies 
Manoush, I would say um, companies, uh, and I've had, um, without naming names, the strong view in certain Anglo-American jurisdictions is this, has, this issue in terms of compliance at the corporate level, which historically is now since 2015, has been treated like a um, softly, softly, gently, gently herding cats. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to be very nice and we want companies to do this. There are some people who said, okay, we've been doing this now for five years. It's now time to put this into the Companies Act and treat it the way uh, the United States would treat the, um, and, and the UK treats the, the Bribery Act. Mm-hmm. You treat it in the context of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or the Bribery Act. And as you know, those are serious uh, pieces of legislation. Yeah. Um, and that's what you could do in the developed world in economies. I do not see this as an issue in um, other, there are, there are other parts of the world that have more authoritarian leadership where the issue of human rights, human dignity and all that, it's going to be a long way off before this, that issue is dealt with. But I think um, those countries will have to ultimately comply or pay attention to this issue as big companies in the West uh, incorporate this into their own jurisdictions. And I, I will say Washington, London, Tokyo, uh, the Australians, the Canadians are all taking this very seriously. Okay, let me open it up. Uh, if I could see some hands. I'll take them in. So, aha, a woman. I'll take you first, then the gentleman here, and then the woman back there. And if you could just introduce yourself briefly and ask the question. Hi, um, my name's Nadia. Um, I'm 17 years old. I'm studying economics and hoping to come to this school. Um, I just want to say thank you, um, and I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you talked about um, child labor, and you talked about how um, consumers um, have, have more power on social media um, on effect to the producers and the suppliers. Um, but what do you say to, those, to the children, about the children um, in those countries that are working um, through child labor who want, aren't, don't have access to free education and are doing this as a way to support their families? Okay, very good. Uh, gentleman back there. Hello. Hi, I'm Rafael Libera. I'm president of Polish City Club here in London. Thank you very much for an enlightening talk. Uh, I just wanted to kind of touch on and follow up on the point um, made earlier about the fact that naming and shaming is very relevant and will work wonders for B2C companies. But in the B2B sector, you don't... You know, consumers don't have that capability because they do not affect, uh, the, the, let's say, the well-being of that company by buying or not buying their products. And what I've definitely seen, because I work in international business, is that UK Bribery Act definitely created this focus of, you know, one-dimensional focus of the companies to make sure this is implemented properly because there was a sanction, and there isn't one in... Um, in, in the uh, Modern Slavery Act, even though you commit to, to disclose whether you have proper procedures in place. So I just, just, just as a comment, I see this problem of having that division or dichotomy between the B2C and B2B markets. 
And secondly, I was wondering to what extent do you think, because you mentioned the uh, EGS kind of um, score of, of, uh, of stocks and, and bonds, that private equity firms who own quite a bit mm. of the B2B market globally have in making sure that their companies that they uh, either are a minority shareholder in or a majority shareholder in do follow those processes and implement it very regularly. The woman right back here. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if you could see me <laughs> on the plant. I'm, I'm Colleen Turon. I'm a lawyer and founder of Audio International. Thank you so much. I think so much of what you said um, really resonated. Uh, we do quite a lot of work with organizations and companies on these issues. And I just wondered if you could perhaps speak a little bit more around the idea of how we could really get a change in the law to introduce enforcement um, penalties because I think your um, description of the Bribery Act is absolutely right but what we don't see in all the disclosure legislation that's been enforced is um, a real introduction of penalties particularly around directors. Um, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Um, okay, these are all really good questions. L let me just start with the first question about um, children uh, and labor. First of all, I'm, I learned a long time ago in my Human Rights Watch hat on, particularly in India and in Africa, where you had many families where, the elder, where, where four, five, six children lost their parents and the eldest first or second child were actually performing the roles of parenting in terms of both creating a home and also providing uh, income and support. So the, and they, had, they were effectively working as children. Uh, so you can't, you have to be careful to project, and this, this I'm no doubt we'll have lots of emails on this, you have to be careful to not to always project Anglo-American Judeo-Christian values on other countries. It's very important to understand the local issues, the local economic issues. But in terms of child um, labor, I always ask um, people, if you can buy a t-shirt for a pound or a dollar, you should really ask yourself, um, well, what, how much money did the person who actually was involved in manufacturing that got? And uh, I would, I'm not gonna say it's impossible, but I would say if someone is buying a t-shirt for a pound or two pounds or three pounds, mm -hmm. or even you know, three, four, five pounds, there's something wrong in that, in that model in terms of the child. And I think um, you, <laughs> this, this gets into a broader issue of encouraging, and this is a separate talk, Manoush, we could do this, encouraging it big multinational companies have to take responsibility for employing people locally and training people locally in Africa and Asia and not encouraging them because of um, drought or war or famine or other issues to migrate to other countries. And it, it is possible to train people. Um, technology now does allow you to, you know, train people through 
mobile telephony does train, educate a lot of people in Africa, for example. So there are ways of doing this, and companies can take responsibility to create local workforces. So I, I do think there has to be more focus on that. Many companies, and some of the metals and mining companies, are actually more engaged in this than some of the consumer products companies are. Um, B2B. B, your point about B2B is very good. I, I would say um, that companies do have to... Um, I, I'm not entirely sure the word shame, by the way, is understood in contemporary 2020 vocabulary. Um, I, I feel as though the word shame is probably one that we have to sort of redefine because I, I don't think a lot of businesses or a lot of people or even a lot of boards understand the word shame again because it does require a certain sense of respect for human dignity and also one's own integrity and behavior. Um, but in terms of B2B, um, you know, companies, consumers still know um, if, you know, the world is fairly transparent about B2B. And if you are getting componentry or... Uh, if one tech company is buying components from another and it is B2B and it's not, it doesn't touch the consumer, there is still a lot of transparency there uh, in terms of um, some of the big players. I mean, you see this a lot with um, one of the manufacturers of handsets um, who isn't on the final, isn't the final um, purveyor of it, but they still are heavily scrutinized by the consumer. The question of Modern Slavery Act, I, I actually, um, two things. One, um, we've only recently celebrated um, you know, the anniversary of Wilberforce in this country, and we, we sometimes forget you know, um, women have only been voting, sadly, for only approximately 100 years. Um, the human rights movement started with Eleanor Roosevelt in 1949 when people thought she was going to talk about, you know, her latest set of recipes or something, and instead she went to the UN and talked about the, the, the role of human rights and dignity, and she, cre she launched, if you will, in 1949, the human rights movement. So I think, um, and then we go all the way forward to this country and the modern slavery act in 2015, this is still early days, and this is why it's very important for people to be activist and to be impatient and to be angry about this. Because given the state of the world and the transparency of the world right now of social media, there's no reason why, um, even though this is a relatively new issue in terms of its legislation history, mm. whether it's the Bribery Act or the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, this has got to be um, you know, taken more seriously. Prosecutions are difficult because... Um, let me give you the best example. I said there were, this is a $150 billion organized crime business. So that's a lot of money. This is like the drug trade. This is serious. So in the fishing industry, off the coast of uh, the UK or off the coast of Europe or in the Philippines, um, if a, re a food retailer discovers that they're buying fish through their audit from... Um, a series of boats that are basically have slaves, um, they can try to prosecute them. Uh, they can certainly, they, and some of them have, but many of these organized criminals are so nimble mm -hmm. that they will actually 
close up shop and relocate to another part of the fishing uh, arena uh, with a different set of, uh, uh, of slaves uh, and, and regroup. They're, they're very, they, they, they have developed enough nimble models in order to do this. Um, it's only when you have sedentary things like palm oil, tea plantations, or other things where you can probably put in your own, you know, I, I could tell you some hysterical stories in, in India where the, the, the number of people in the factory not just doubles but triples when the auditors are not there. So what you're really going to have to do is you're going to have to have people in the factory full-time who are somewhat anonymous who are there watching this and making sure this is happening. And if it does, if it, when it does happen, um, you have to figure out how to deal with it. And the only way you deal with it is by paying directly. It's like a long time ago, I, had a, I was working with an oil and gas company that kept giving uh, money to build hospitals in Nigeria, and they discovered the only way they were actually going to get the hospital built was, surprise, surprise, to build it themselves, um, because that way they would know exactly the source and the use of the money. Uh, and that's, that's what we're dealing with now in terms of having control over certain parts of your supply chain, particularly the part where people are involved. Other questions? Uh, maybe I'll take a group of questions right here, and then I'll come to the back. So. Oh, hi, my name is Philippe Lenoble. I was uh, an infrastructure investor at a bank close to here, and then for a Canadian pension fund, and then now an Australian pension fund. Um, thank you for the speech. My question is about certification. You see in ESG, for example, more and more funds want to do the right things, either because they want to do the right thing or because their investors want them to do the right thing. And the challenge is, you know, how do you do it? And third-party certification on an ongoing basis helps. And do you see the same thing? Is the same thing even possible for, for, for slavery? And do you see that some organization will be able to provide that? Uh, or is it too far-fetched at the moment to, to consider that? Thank you. Uh, Mitali Thapur, Risk Analyst, Bank of England. Um, you, you, you spoke about um, a call for mandatory human rights due diligence. In 2019 at Davos, you spoke about a geopolitical recession and the rise of personalities in, um, in, in global politics. How would you say, if, if any, how would you say that has impacted the level of action taken against modern slavery worldwide with a particular focus on the developing world? Hi, I'm Viraj. I'm 17 and I'm an offer holder at the LSE. So I just wanted to ask, first of all, how do you think tech disruptions to the labor market will affect slavery in the future? And secondly, how governments can avoid regulatory capture in regulating slavery in the future? Regulatory. Let me also start. Um, I, I skipped, and I didn't mean to. Um, um, over here, there was a the good question about um, the illiquid or private equity space and how... Let me say there's a general trend and it the the countries and the pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds that are most um, focused on sustainability goals and ESG and and they're very uh, rigorous and I mean rigorous about um, uh, uh, what I call deselecting from certain types of investments uh, are basically the Nordic region uh, Germany, uh, certain states in the United States, perhaps the state of California, the state of New York, 
Um, increasingly, some of the sovereign wealth funds in Australia. Um, so, as more and more funds are becoming very clear about, and these are these are driven by uh, government legislation saying you will not invest in certain things. It, it may some it's heading in the direction of things like carbon but obviously now it includes things like defense or uh, tobacco or defense or arms and in some cases it's opioids um, but there are also a whole host of other areas that relate to this issue of um, exploited labor um, so it the, and it's changed a lot I would say in the last one to two years. I'm noticing it materially. I mean, tomorrow I'll be in um, Sweden, and then Thursday and Friday I'll be in Denmark. And I can tell you, those countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, are very focused in a very sincere way to have ESG-compliant portfolios, but that are, but still are demanding about the returns of those portfolios. And and. With the right fund management tactics and strategies, they will they will do that. Uh, so it is possible. Um, um, going over here to the uh, question of um, being um, held hostage by the um, regular, you know, it's 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 hard to know. Um, um, this is an issue that is still a very personal issue and it relates to your question about authoritarian leadership. I can tell you there are some authoritarian leaders who um, are very uh, emotional about this. Um, uh, in the United States, uh, the evangelical movement, uh, President Trump, uh, Vice President Pence, uh, the President's daughter are all very focused on um, working to minimize or reduce modern slavery in the United States and, and trafficking and whatever. So he, he is very focused on this. And they, they see this as something that is a human rights issue. They see it as part of the, it plays to the evangelical base, for example. Uh, it really varies because there are some countries um, where the, the authoritarian leaders are interested in this, but I would say the majority of the authoritarian leaders are not that interested in it uh, yet because it, it again it's all about money uh, and short term uh, people think about it in a short term uh, way and it's um, I don't want to get into specific countries here but I, I you know but but it it's um, it, 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 we have a ways to go in terms of this type of thing that's why it's gonna we're starting with the Anglo American um, legal. Uh, government framework, uh, which I think is, makes a lot more sense. Um, this question here, over here, you know, I, I've got to say I don't really have a clue. I honestly don't know. I mean, because the regulators, um, I, I can tell you in um, in in certain industries, um, it's really hard. It's really hard at the moment. I, I, it's uh, it's going to depend a lot more on. The, the fines and the penalties, and it's going to probably de depend upon, uh, uh, it's going to be an area that will, um, it's probably going to have to start in a country like the United States. Yeah, and without a clear enforcement regime, yeah. it's hard for regulators to get traction. 
So it's yeah, no, it's easy to deal with the, the corporation in terms of dealing with uh, best efforts to manage their supply chains for slavery. It's another thing to deal with people that are actually... And I've got to say that the, the district attorneys in states like in the city of New York, for example, Cyrus Vance is extremely effective at um, tracking down um, uh, networks uh, in the five boroughs mm. of, uh, of Manhattan. What about the question uh, on certification? If, should we be pushing to have a certification regime and third-party verification and kite marks and all that stuff, which has been a little bit effective in other domains? Um, I, think the, I think we're going to get there. Um, I think it's going to depend, A, on the industry, uh, and B, on whether it can be done, but I think we have to push for it. I think one of the issues you have, um, and this will be a controversial statement, is this is an example of where many of the people in the regulatory framework in government have never run businesses and don't understand necessarily what we're talking about here in terms of the complexities of supply chains. Um, and the people who are in these areas are in a position to argue that this is impossible, it's complicated. So you have people who are talking across purposes at the moment. And until you get more people from business in government and more people from government, conversely in business, um, or in public policy and mm. in corporate sector, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. Yeah. I think I have time for one more round of questions. Hi, um, my name is Ben. Um, I was, I'm 17. I was just wondering what do you think can be done um, to make young people in particular more passionate about the issue of, um, the anti uh, of the modern slavery movement like they are with climate change? My name is Rishi. I'm also 17. Uh, thank you for your lecture. Um, my question is, uh, picking up on your point about the cost-saving um, effect of slavery, and it was more for, um, so my question is, do you think that there's a need for a shift away from the huge emphasis on like economic growth and GDP in economies and more towards kind of welfare and well-being of citizens in general? You measure economic progress. And there's a third Hi, yeah, uh, Aaron Spivey from uh, Sancroft International. Um, I just had a question about two um, kind of solutions that you, well, call them action points at least. Um, one is around modern slavery statements. Um, how are they comparable? How can we compare across industries and so on? And how can us as consumers actually use them as, as kind of useful things? And I think that's kind of something where the government perhaps haven't, as you quite rightly said, it was a big piece of legislation. It's something perhaps that should have been shouted about a little bit more than it was and has kind of been lost. And the second is on uh, mandatory human rights due diligence. Um, I think you're probably one of the first of your community to come out and call for this. And I think that's a very welcome step. But how are we going to move further from uh, kind of purpose-led organizations and kind of groups of pension funds from calling from this and get it into the mainstream as a, as a kind of big call? Um, that's, those are good questions. Let me take the last part first because I, 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 the most interesting part of uh, questions are or this last part, and then the question about how to, how to galvanize young people. Um, when you look at the trust data today, what's interesting about young people, young people don't trust, and by young people I'm talking about people under the age of 40, people don't trust governments, they don't trust the media because of the concern about the role of fake news. Um, they 
don't necessarily trust, they certainly don't trust wealthy people. Uh, they've been written off. Um, the only people they actually trust, it's quite interesting, are employees in corporations who, where they trust or have respect for the CEO. So the thing I've discovered is, this is again only in the last 12 months, and this keeps changing depending on the world's evolution, but chief executives who, who people, and all of you are, those of you who are interviewing for jobs, you know you're joining a company not and for anyone who always joins a company and says you never focus, you should never focus your first or second job on compensation. You should focus on job description, training, but increasingly on corporate culture. What what type of corporate culture are you joining, and why? And and I, I'm quite confident that there are very many CEOs today who realize that the people in this room, it's what I call talent. If people want a stable talent pool and an evolving talent pool and an interesting, engaged talent pool, they know that the best people can go and have a lot of choices. Because remember, look at the unemployment numbers in Europe, Asia, and in uh, North America right now. Unemployment is incredible. All, you know, it's, a, it's at a very, very low, le- a very, very low level. So if you're a CEO... You're going to be very focused on corporate culture, corporate values, human values. So you've obviously everyone's focused on issues like diversity, uh, a range of rights of people, and that is increasingly. That's why I think this is early days. But as we talk about um, human rights due diligence of the pipeline and of the culture, people are very sensitive about that uh, as part of their workforce and as part of the business they're joining. So I, I think it's actually quite possible, and I think it's, um, it's incumbent upon people, as I said, for human resources really to uh, not devolve into human remains, but to, uh, to, t- <laughs> to step it up and human resources to actually be, to evolve into what I call talent management at a higher level. Um, the comment about um, how do you get more young people involved if I took all of you or a subset of you with me to India to, or to Nigeria or Kenya or to the Amazon and you spent some time either in a classroom with five-year-old children watching them be taught how not to be trafficked. Because what's interesting about trafficking is it's very much like rape. You're, you're more likely to be trafficked. You're 50 to 60% likely to be trafficked by a member of your extended family and by someone who knows you. You're not going to be trafficked by strangers. So it's very important to teach young children to become aware around the world about trafficking. It's important to teach adolescents around the world when they go to a big sporting event or they go to the Olympics. They can be approached by a lot of people, a lot of young men and women are trafficked in established capitals where there's the World Cup or the Olympics or something else. And, and there are police who are very mindful of these groups that traffic, um, particularly targeting young men and women between the ages of sort of 12 and 16 who might be very impressionable. But if I took you to a tea plantation or if I took you to a place where you met people who were survivors of trafficking, who were spending time taking years to recover, 
people only respond to human stories. And that's the thing I discovered. It goes back to my Mother Teresa thing. I can talk till I'm blue in the face about modern slavery, supply chain, and all these fairly anodyne, cold subjects. But when you actually apply an issue to a human being and a human life and someone's tragedy, everybody in this room, just because of who you are, would decide, hmm, this is a real, this is someone's life. This is someone who's really been, who's been abused, who's been exploited, and now look what's happened to them. And, you know, it's, American Airlines has a very interesting group of women who they employ now as stewardesses who've, who are survivors. And you notice I'm very careful not to use the word victim. I think the word victim is a destructive, insulting, and it's a negative term. This is about survivors of trafficking. Um, and, and, you know, I've sat in these uh, groups of women and men who've been trafficked, um, and when you hear their stories, and sometimes they still have trauma three, four, five, six, seven years after the fact. So then you realize that this is a serious, real issue, and it's not something you can just treat as a sort of moving, pl- moving chips or, or, or pieces around a, uh, a chess or checkerboard. And then there was one other question. Um, yes, there was a question about, uh, oh, how can we use the anti-slavery statements to be a more effective tool of, uh, for, for consumers to use those statements and, uh, and due diligence to inform consumer behavior? Well, I think, again, people are very um, – I think it's incumbent. There probably aren't enough NGOs or policy organizations that are empowering people to be more critical consumers. Um, you know, it's interesting. When Michael Bloomberg was mayor of New York and he he's now – in, in his running for president of the United States, he's accused of sort of introducing the nanny state mm-hmm. by actually in, by by um, uh, legislating against sixteen sixteen ounce yeah. um, soft drinks, and people say you can't do that. People have a right to do that, but actually, um, he focused on the fact that sugar has a, a negative impact on on type two diabetes, and it got. A lot of attention, and there are lots of examples. It's like the state of California when they um, made it illegal to use plastic straws. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there are ways of doing this, um, and it's. I think we're just in this period now where, because climate change, which is very important, is become seen to be the predominant issue. The issue of modern slavery is just one of four or five other issues, mm-hmm. and we need to mm-hmm. again. I need, I need the Greta to uh, <laughs> emerge from this room here. Uh, someone, you know, there's probably somebody in this room who has the, the speaking ability, the presence, the education, the determination. Um, and what better platform than the LSE, right? Very good. Very good. <laughs> well, I think I will draw it to a close there and start by thanking you, John, for 
raising our awareness of this incredibly important issue, giving us a sense of how economically important and significant it is, but also giving us a sense of the way forward and how one could go about addressing this important issue in the world. I think you've inspired us all to be more active and aware in our own lives, and I hope among all these clever 17-year-olds who've been asking questions, we have a future Greta who will fight for the end of modern slavery. But most importantly, we wanted to thank you for an excellent talk well, and, uh, and for coming to the LSE. No, well, thank you for inviting me.